0: to On Death. This is a podcast where we explore the oftentimes taboo topic of death. We want to give people a place to come and listen to others around their experience with death and dying and to encourage and support a healthy relationship with death. This is an outlet for healing, empowerment, and growth. And we come here to support this work and, and get it out there and, and get people on board. So my name is Tom and I've got Matthew here co-hosting and uh, Matthew's gonna introduce our, our guest for the day.
1: Yeah, thanks Tom. I'm really excited um, to have Baraka Blue with us today. We met many years ago um, in Bali. So to, to connect again now, you know, five or so years later is, is um, a real pleasure. And through the work of death, um, we'll get into that in a second. But uh, Barak is uh, a Sufi poet. He's a musician, an artist. He's an author, I'm still waiting for your book to come in. I just got it the other day. I was hoping it would get here before this, but um, it, it hasn't yet. Uh, he has a degree in Arabic and Islamic studies. And most recently, he is launching a course based on the Stephen Levine book, uh, A Year to Live. And this will be a year-long project with him and a ton of what seems like these awesome, super deep teachers um, with a group of people that will be doing this project based on Stephen's work of a year to live before you die. Um, Thanks, man.
2: I'm honored. Very grateful to be here.
1: I I have, uh, I mean, just generally, I'm really curious what, prompted you to start this, this course and, you know, and get these awesome teachers together. And
2: yeah, no, it's a great question. And it's something exciting. And, it, you know, we're recording this a day before actually the course starts. So it's a uh, perfect timing. It's been on my mind and my heart a lot. And uh, we're, we're so grateful that you both will be joining us for that. Um, I guess you could say that the, the conversation arrived, arose when I was speaking with a good friend of mine, Uh, Micah Anderson, who's going to be one of the core facilitators of the course. And he actually studied this book with Stephen. And he's a really beautiful person, a friend of mine for many years. Musical background, went through the whole kind of like seeker trajectory. He was kind of part of the Dharma punks um, thing. And then he was in India and he found Sufi teachers and that kind of drew him into the Sufi path. So we've known each other through that for over a decade now. Um, but we're very much both kind of, I think, interested in the broader, um, space of the Eastern traditions coming West and what that means and, and that, that, um, you know, um, the different forms that that's taken. And Mm -hmm. so I think we're both kind of like students of multiple traditions and particularly students of the way that these teachings and the teachers that have have really transmitted these teachings have done so and translated that for a western audience in different ways and so um, you know this is i know that uh vinnie ferrero who's also a friend of mine had and and others have taught this text within a kind of like buddhist context community and so we i had looked at that um but we mike and i talked about doing this within a Uh, predominantly um, Sufi community or with Sufi facilitators, not exclusively, we also have Buddhist facilitators and others, but uh, more kind of bringing in elements of Sufism, because just like Buddhism and other traditions, really every tradition, the Sufi tradition has such a profound emphasis on death and and rebirth and awakening and Mm. ego death and things like that. So we thought it was really a rich kind of um, convergence to, to kind of look into. And so in fact, <clears throat> we'll, we'll get into this I'm sure in the course, but um, uh, within the last year, both Mikey and myself had uh, kind of really intense, you could say, um, uh, an intimate confrontations with death. He actually uh, was a victim of gun violence in very strange circumstances he was actually in his home and there was a shootout outside and a bullet came through the window and and pierced his leg when he was sitting on his couch so imagine like and so he you know he was rushed to the hospital and he was he's fine you know but of course that was just a really intense experience that that he had and then a few months after that i actually at the very beginning of this pandemic i had a really um Kind of intense bout of the coronavirus myself wow and, no kidding. Uh, yeah yeah it just in in march in the first week of march of, of 2020 and so um you know i had the kind of a few days of very constricted breathing and um you know i just had to sit with the fact that like okay i can breathe now uh, not very deeply but i can still breathe But if this progresses any further, it's gonna get real interesting, you know? Mm. Um, And I had a few days of that. And then I had longer kind of symptoms that lasted a full basically two months. So, you know, I had, you know, really intense symptoms. Um, And because it was especially at the very beginning of the pandemic, nobody knew, my doctors didn't know, nobody could really give me any advice. And so I was like, the psychological aspect of it was actually way more profound than the physical. I was just like, okay, this this could be it. And, um, you know, I had, I've had a couple in my life of near-death experiences, car crashes and things like that. But I never had like a illness, which made me sit for days on end and really um, contemplate the very real fact that this could be my last day or my last few days or my last week, you know? So um, after I recovered from that, um, and even Micah was one of the people I reached out to when I was, when I had the virus just to speak to, cause he's a really, um, he's a beautiful brother. He's also a therapist and just a deep traveler on the path and companion. So we talked a lot about mortality. And afterwards, uh, after I recovered, we kind of, we had talked about doing a year to live course before that. But after that, we said like, okay, maybe now we, you know, maybe now we have some experience to speak about you know in these type of topics it's like you know what can you say I mean I remember I reached out to Kabir Helminski who's going to be a guest uh, teacher for this course and he's one of the most um, kind of prominent uh, translators of Rumi and a Sufi teacher in America and I asked him if he would speak on this topic of death and he said well you know I only like to speak about things i've personally experienced so i can speak about more applied spirituality and and community and things like that but you know i thought there's a reality to that right um Mm -hmm. you know it's hard to put, put yourself up there as i'm the specialist on dying well i don't know you know so in any case that was kind of the impetus for the course we had talked about it we'd explored it but after that and for kind of then i guess you'd say the last nine months we decided like, let's really get together and do this because this is a time, and I'll just end with this. This is a time when I think we're all confronted with a mor- our morality, uh, our mortality in a way that is much more visceral than usual. And I think maybe like, you know, yourselves, uh, you know, some of us might be outliers in that we kind of have been called to contemplate death as a spiritual practice, like you you I don't know you guys didn't share with me yet the impetus for this podcast, but you're clearly not two people that are shying away from the topic of death right' <laughs> making this podcast, but most people are, most of us are, and even those of us, I right. think that and if I could just be kind of to be to lower the water line, one of the things that when I had the virus and I was really kind of meditating on the uh, you know the real possibility of death at this point in my life, it kind of cut through a little bit of the illusion, even the spiritual illusion that I had. And it made me realize, like, I don't feel prepared. I don't feel like I'm actually ready for this, even though I read all this great Sufi poetry and talk about it. And I think I'm someone who contemplates it as part of my spiritual practice on a daily basis. When I, when I was confronted with the possibility of it could be now, I felt like, wow, I have a lot of work to do before this, you know, that's what I felt like. Yeah. And so this is really our attempt, uh, to, to make intention with a group, with a cohort of, of seekers on the path to work on that, to do that work.
1: Yeah. Who you said so much good stuff in there, um, When, when you talk about even like in this moment of, you know, coronavirus and being really sick and then looking at your own mortality and, you know, very similar, you know, the Kabir poems, the Rumi poems, you know, the, the spiritual practices, the ego death, when you actually look at your own mortality, it's like, I don't, I don't know if I'm ready, you know, like there's still a huge part of me. That's (laughs) That's scary. <laughs> so I think I, I would be totally lying if, if uh, I was like, yeah, that, it's cool. I'm, I'm like in some ways very attached to certain things, right? And that's so much of the game is, OK, well, let's look at where that attachment comes from. And this moment in time, yeah, it's like death is so on the, the mainstream like COVID deaths. I mean, you look at any news channel or news website and there's like a tally box. It's like, and it's for a lot of people, it's just numbers. And people are at least saying the word death and dying, but they're doing it in a way where it's fear. It's not being able to have a healthy conversation around it. You know, we, we um, we may never have a total understanding of like being free to die, but at least we can work towards that. And, um, I, I'll say one more thing and then, you know, we'll, we'll, get back to going back and forth, but I'm curious when you had that moment of, Oh fuck my, I can't breathe that well. What I remember from reading uh, a year to live Stephen Levine says that sometimes, when people would get their terminal diagnosis, there there would be a bit of relief, right and freedom, and it it's like <laughs> I'm 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 reading this uh, Ram Dass book that just came out yesterday, and he has a similar thing where when he gets fired from Harvard, where he's like, huh, <laughs> like there's there, there's like ooh. It, it, there's part of it that's really scary, but now it's like, I'm not stuck doing that thing anymore. Right. If I'm curious if there was a little bit of, of, of that, or if it was still <laughs> oh shit.
2: You know? a real question. So, I mean, really what happened first, it's interesting is it was literally right when it was actually before the lockdown happened. And so everyone was just starting to talk about it. If you remember, I'm in Seattle and Seattle was actually the first place in North America that had started having cases. So, but, but it was spreading without anyone knowing it was here. And so like, I remember we have a, a center and I was teaching and it was just starting to come out. And I said, look, there's this virus. So if people just don't shake hands today and people were kind of like, really? Like people didn't really know it was here yet. And I was like, yeah, I don't want to be overly cautious, but let's just you know care for each other. And then I remember the next few days we ended up canceling our next class. And a lot of people were like really why, you know, cause it no one really knew if there was cases here yet and things. And so then like, as the hysteria was starting to build and there were things were starting to lock down and grocery stores were starting to close. I started to feel kind of physically ill. And I was like, is this like psychosomatic because everyone's talking about it. I was like, this is too surreal. And so I just, you know, but just in case, I went and got a bunch of groceries, I remember, and like stocked up. And um, sure enough, I felt just really weak for a couple of days and like a light fever, but not too bad. And then one day I was teaching a class online because we had moved our classes online. And as I was teaching, like, I felt kind of weak, but I felt okay. And then all of a sudden, I like was losing my breath. I couldn't really speak. And and, and it it kind of set off the like very like just the first thing was like the very physical kind of like fight or flight like oh no you know that was like the, the kind of just very like animal fear bodily responses um where I just felt you know that and so afterwards you know I, I tried to close kind of quickly without being too abrupt and uh I called a friend of mine who's a doctor actually and I kind of told him my symptoms and these type of things and you know, he said, look, the, the bad news is that you most certainly have it based on what you're saying. He said, but the good news is there's an 80 to 90% chance you can deal with this at home. You won't have to go to a hospital, things like that. So just, I said, well, what do I do? And he said, just keep doing what you're doing. I was like, I'm not doing anything. Like what to do. So I remember feeling that type of um, just very physical animal like fear response. And I started to feel very weak. In my body just you know almost like lightheaded you know when you're and um i actually went to lay down it was the evening so i went to lay down and very quickly i had i noticed um that my mind that my thoughts kind of started to project really rapidly in in both directions so one direction was the natural like what if i get sick what if i have to go to the hospital what if i can't breathe what if i die what you know what am I? what's my mother going to think what you know like the whole thing right it just like totally but then i, I pu- it pulled back also to the like wow if i you know this is you know intense experience and if i survive this like you know i already started to hear the stories i would tell about this experience which i'm doing now kind of you know what i mean like I, and so both but both of those even the like nice story of, oh, it'll be okay. It, it felt to me like there was some, um, like I was missing the moment if I went either way. So I was just mm. like, stop. Like I really caught, you know, this meditative practice of like letting go of b- both of those stories that were mm. projecting into the future or leaning into the future and just being in this. And I kept coming back to the breath, you know, as like we, we practice in meditation, but I was really like, I can still breathe now. You know, it was a really like very just primal experience of like, yes, I can't breathe too deep. I feel constriction in my lungs, but I can still breathe in this moment. And that was kind of what I felt like liberated. It was the one thing that soothed me in that moment. Like, I can breathe now. I can breathe now. Like, don't worry about if I can't breathe in an hour because I can breathe now. So that was kind of what became my like grounding, so to speak. Hmm. And then, um, yeah, like you said, I had to really um, reflect on the fact that like, okay, this is the, you know, the, the kind of beautiful surrender, like, if this is it, like, I want to be in that, that state of surrender. So there was some of that. But at first, especially the first day, it was like, it was interesting. To, th- to like the actual physical response that almost like the automatic nervous system response that I didn't have control over like I felt just the kind of like physical sensation of fear, even if I told my mind, you know. And mm-hmm. I remember it's interesting you bring up Ram Dass and I, I'll never forget I heard a interview with him after his stroke. Um, and you have probably heard this because I think he mentioned it. I think it was really profound you know at that point he had written books about aging and dying with grace and you know his, his whole career of teaching but he kind of had a, a reflection with himself. He said, I'm the, I'm the one who talks about these things. He said, but in that moment, I didn't feel ready. You know, I remember him saying like, yeah. yeah. And that was profound for me. And so I did feel like, uh, you know, but it also, because I had a little protracted, like my lungs kind of got better. It was interesting. It came, for me, it came in waves. I know there's a lot of people, they say like 10%, especially a lot of young people that Their immune system can fight it off, but they get this kind of like long COVID where they have symptoms for a month or two or three. So I had symptoms for almost two months and it would come in waves. So I'd get better and stronger and then I get weaker. And then, and I was like, wow, Um, just observing that. And, but also because I couldn't, it wasn't the type of thing where my loved ones could come support me. It was like, I don't want to expose that. So it was really, and I live, you know, alone right now. So it was really like, okay. And so um, for me, usually I'm someone who, in that like two month period, usually I'm someone who loves to read and loves to, but actually all, what I really loved, I would sit on my balcony and I would observe the birds. I would like, I really wanted to be observing What was unfolding in this moment in this natural world i didn't have as much interest in like abstract intellectual reflection or you know things that i usually do i was really like i want to watch the feathers on the bird like that's what kind of brought me into a sense of peace
1: yeah Woof. i love that
2: yeah
0: yeah man i found it's funny the bird well first i want to say like it's funny how when death is at our doorstep mom always comes in you know it's, <laughs> it's like the third the third thought is what's what is mom gonna think um <laughs> i've had that experience too it's funny but the, the birds have have brought me a lot of peace during this time too there's something about it there's something about watching life unfold as you said in a way and the phrase that always comes to my mind when i see that happening is nature doesn't care like nature, nature doesn't, it's not that it it doesn't care. It's just nature is unaffected. Nature is, Mm. it just keeps going. It just keeps going. And, and it's like, I'm telling myself that as I, that's the mantra Mm. now in the, in Steven's book, they talk about a death chant, developing a death chant. Do you, do you have a death chant? Did you use that death chant?
2: Yeah, I did. I mean, I I did. I actually felt very drawn to like spiritual practice to invoking to recitation of the Quran and to listening to beautiful recitation. I found it very soothing. Um, And I also, you know, uh, really came back to my um, you know, the various like mantras that I recite on a regular basis, but sometimes I'm not as consistent on I really like came back. That's all. That's what I really wanted to do. I wanted to just I found that greatly soothing, and um, so yeah. I mean that those were the things that I really like to do. I like to recite. Uh, I like to invoke the name of God and uh, and listen to the the scriptures being recited. That brought me a lot of peace. Yeah.
1: Do you have uh, like a certain recording that you that you listen to?
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. i have a few that i like a lot yeah
1: yeah there there is a a real potency when you can hear someone reciting or or singing like even um in the past year especially during um again this covid sort of time um, i've been really loving listening to the koali music and you know, like I'll catch a word once in a while that I understand, (laughs) but most of the time I'm like, ah, it's just, but the whole, the the song just moves you. You have like, for me, I have no choice but to like either weep or sometimes I'll find myself like laughing hysterically because of how ridiculous the, the songs get, you know, with like the texture from the tablas and the harmonium. Um, yeah, I've just been like really, really loving Kuali music. Um, and I'll share a story because I, I, uh, I, you know it's coming to mind. Um, it must have been a c- couple of years now. I was in Delhi uh, at, I, I hope I'm pronouncing the name right, Nizamuddin, the Nizamuddin Darg mm. in Delhi. And um, I remember... I went there in the beginning of my trip when I was first kind of getting my, my legs, my India legs underneath me. You know, I flew into Delhi and, you know, you drink your chai and next thing you know, you're at a a darga And so I had went back um, maybe a month or so later and I walked into where the, the main uh, darga is like where Nizamuddin is, is um, buried and, you know, you kind of enter in from the left side and you loop around and you know everyone is doing their devotional practices whether offering incense or flowers or um, some some kind of fabric or sheet that goes goes across and it's you know a very popular place in in Delhi so it's really uh, really tight there's a lot of people in there and i managed to kind of scoot to the side and off like back by the wall. So I didn't leave right away. I, I got to like be in there for a moment and everyone was um, praying and they're, they're, they were having these like really beautiful moments. And I had this, <laughs> almost like a moment how you have, like uh, like what am I doing? Like I've done all this stuff and now I don't know what to do because I don't know the, the, any of the, the language or the prayers. And there, and everyone's very certain, like looking sort of specific. And I had this moment of just being, being like, you know what? God is good. And I just sat there and I started weeping, just saying to myself, God is so good. God is so good. God doesn't care in these moments of what prayer I'm doing, you know. So my song at that time, or the my aphorism or mantra, was just God is good. God is good. God is good. And I just started weeping there, and you know, and um, got to sit in the courtyard afterwards, and saw some qawwali uh, music by the musicians there. Um, but ever since then, I feel like there's been a part of me and part of my heart that was been taken by the the Sufi tradition, and um, I'm kind of curious, like what. Because I don't know a lot about their teachings and on if they have teachings on death, like specifically on death.
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that.
1: Oh, um, thanks for listening. I know. <laughs> you know but I would
2: say that like, you know, I've had the blessing of traveling a lot living in, you know, all across the world, um, you know, in Sufi communities from West Africa to Turkey to Indonesia to mm-hmm. You know, all across Arabia, et cetera, Egypt, et cetera. And, and one of the things that's so beautiful and that ties in with this conversation um, and, and in your story is the attachment to the graves of the saints. It actually mm-hmm. is celebration of death. And I remember when I first was quite young and I went to Morocco and I went to Turkey and I went to all these places. And you know, growing up in America, it was like, graveyards were like kind of eerie and spooky and we would kind of like run by them at night or you know, you dare each other to run in them, you know, like this type of thing as a kid. But there, there are these places of light and celebration and song. And like, I actually came to love graveyards. Like I really love graveyards. Even when I'm back in America, I really love graveyards just because of that experience, like of a whole society that celebrates death. It's such a different orientation. Mm-hmm. And especially the de- the deaths of the saint the saintly ones and you know of course the whole point is that that, that death is is no barrier death is no barrier that the blessing mm-hmm. is still there at these places the spirit is still there and you know so I think as far as um, Sufi teaching about death you know we had as a tagline of this course one of the like kind of more, most famous Sufi aphorisms is. Die before you die. Die before you die. And, you know, that I'm sure other traditions have similar um, exhortations, but within the Sufi context, um, and again, there are a lot of parallels in other traditions, but within the Sufis, uh, particularly, they emphasize the fact that there's various levels of the self. And there's what's called the nafs al amara. The nafs is usually called the self or the soul. And there's the nafs al-lamara, which is basically that it literally means the commanding self. It's that kind of ego self, which commands you to do this and do that. But the whole point is that's your illusory self. And then you have a a higher self, which is called the nafs al-lawama, which literally means the accounting self or that self which calls you to account. In modern terms, we'd probably call it your conscience, right? It's like that. Hmm. Oh, we know like... You know basically don't be selfish be selfless you know don't be greedy be generous you know it's like that and there's the idea that these kind of selves are actually um fighting within each one of us you know i know there's like a native american kind of proverb that each person has a wolf of light and a wolf of darkness fighting within them and the one that you that wins is the one you feed most so right through selflessness through righteous action through goodness through virtue, cleaning the heart from the ego, you you strengthen that. So it's a very similar teaching. And then there's uh, the third level of the self, is the al mutmaina, which literally means the tranquil self or the self at peace. And this is kind of finally when the quote-unquote battle is won over the lower self. There there comes a, a tranquility, and this this is the level of wilaya, which is usually translated as like sainthood like Nadama, in the Olya is the, is the plural of Wali and Wali is a beautiful word in, in Arabic, which means, it literally means friend. So, and you, you, you hear this in, in, in Rumi poetry and things like that, that, that the saints are literally called the friends of God, God's friends. Right. Hmm. And, and, you know, Rumi and others in the Persian tradition, they even call God the friend, the great, you know, the companion, the beloved. And so this is the idea that there's a kind of intimacy that one gets with the divine through um, eroding that illusory self. And this is the image that the Sufis most often use is polishing, that the heart is a mirror. And the teaching really is is that we actually, our being, our our spirit, is a mirror that can reflect the divine names and qualities and attributes. In fact, that's what we're created for. And that's at the root of our being. But we're not usually at the root of our being. So we have to polish a way to get there. Yeah. And if we remove the, the you know, and so Rumi says, you know, constantly, like, the thinnest veil of ego is the thing that keeps you blind. It's just the thinnest veil. That's what's holding you back from being, you know, experiencing the divine presence. So there's a lot of lines of poetry and teachings like this. So that kind of idea of death, then, is, is really that ego death. And, um, you know, Rumi has this line where he says, see infinite life in, in letting the self die, right? That there's actually what we dislike often, um, you know, spiritual discipline, whether it's fasting, whether it's, you know, waking up in the last third of the night to invoke, uh, and whether it's um, giving from our wealth selfishly, selfish, selflessly, or whether it's, taking vows of poverty or these, you know, things that our ego doesn't like, right? Um, these are actually what is best for us because it, it, it kind of erodes, it, it lets go. We're letting go of identifying with that thing. And so, but from the ego's perspective, that is death, right? We experience that as death. So we don't, so there's a sense that, you know, and, and you know, this is the context of Rumi's famous lines like, uh, you know, the, the wound is the place where the light enters you. Or, you know, mm. uh, if, the, if the stone, the, if the ruby is, is, is irritated at every rub, how will it ever become polished, right? That these actually experiences, whether they're spiritual experiences or other difficulties that were kind of given in our life, challenging experiences, that these are the great opportunities um, for awakening and for um, awakening to our true self. And so I think in that context, Sufism, that's the essence of Sufism, is how do we put that in practice? And, um, and and you see this, of course, in basically all of the great mystical traditions is this very similar just using different language to talk about the same reality. And so, you know, Rumi has, and then I'll close with this, he has a lot of poetry about death. And, and of course, many of the other great Sufi teachers do, but Rumi is, you know, exemplary in in so many ways you know he has this beautiful analogy of of birth as death and so he says like for the for the the infant the baby in the mother's womb this is its happiness right the womb is its happiness it gets nourishment directly it's warm it gets lullabies the baby loves this and so when the mother starts to push and you start to go towards the light he says right you know of, of birth the baby experiences as, as 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 horrifying as terrible like i'm i don't want to leave this place this is where i'm happy this is where everything i'm comfortable and i'm safe and it, you know i'm nourished and i'm comforted and so the the pushing towards the light going towards the light is experienced with a great deal of fear and it's experienced as death. I don't want to die. Mm. But of course, Rumi says on the, other, on the other side right, of that, everyone is, is so happy and welcoming the baby. The whole family is there celebrating. And the mother herself, right, going through the difficulty of it, but with, with great joy. Um, and so Rumi then says, this is what death is that we die from this world to a world that is infinitely greater, right? That, that The people on the outside of the mother's womb know, like, yes, the womb is a blessed place, but coming out, you, could, you know, it's this infinitely vaster world of experiences and love, and you're not going to, in fact, be severed from the love that was the womb, right? You going, you're going, you, the mother is still there, you know, um, and you're going to be able to experience this, the vast world. And so Rumi said this world that we're in is like the womb in relation to the next world. Right? Ah, so he says uh he says you know and then he, has, he says when has death ever been bad for you? When has death <laughs>
0: <laughs> There's this um amazing writing by Wayne Dyer um uh, life after delivery. It it describes really similarly what you're talking about. Um I'm just gonna have to send it to you afterwards, and whoever's listening can look at because it's it's a. I don't want to take up too much time reading it, but it's it's two it's twins having a conversation inside the womb about. Do you think that life after delivery exists? It's it's beautiful, beautiful (laughs) poem, or prose rather. Um, I'm curious, Baraka, with you know I have this veil of this ego veil that's saying, uh, and I see the paradox in it too, but it's saying. Well what what about, you know, if I'm living to die, then am I discounting or wasting my life, the time that I have here? If I'm all I'm doing my whole life is preparing to die. Mm. Um, what what do you what do you have to say to that? That part of me? Mm. That part of the, the listener sphere who's like, wait, what do you mean I'm supposed to spend my whole life preparing to die?
2: You know, I think um, this is a great question. and It's a real question. I'm glad you asked it because it is, um, you know, and I think that's also why Rumi, there are two kind of streams within Sufism and you could probably find this in other traditions, but there are, there's the path that is very, um, emphasizes the world denying asceticism, um, but there's also the, the path that emphasizes um, love and emphasizes actually the fact that all of this is from the beloved and that by partaking and experiencing the world in its fullness that that is a spiritual path as well and they're not mutually exclusive I think they're different emphasis you know uh, emphasis because of course the path of love Rumi also was very he had a very um, intense spiritual um, practice of discipline of fasting and of things like this right so they're not mutually exclusive but they're just emphasis and so for those that um you know walk that path of love what they call meshabi ish the the path of actually it's really like intense passionate almost like radical love which rumi represents so beautifully um they actually see that every aspect of life is is part of the spiritual path, and that so. For instance, Rumi has a really profound line where he says he talks about the fact that everything anyone loves is actually the divine beloved, and this gets to the idea of that that you know the 99 names of God that you'll find in the Islamic tradition, where you know God's name is not just God, but God is the name of Ar Rahman, which is infinitely loving compassion. And the name Al-Adl, which means justice, God is justice, and the name Al-Aziz, which is the all-powerful, and then the the all-seeing, the all-hearing, right? So there's all these names. And so the idea here is that if you love a beautiful face or a beautiful sunset or a beautiful rose, you're loving Al-Jamal, which means beauty, the, the infinite beauty, the divine. And if you love the majesty of a, of, a, of a mountain or the Grand Canyon or physical strength in someone, you're loving a trace of that power, of that divine that's in that, reflected in that. Or if you love justice, right, so many people in our time, right, we're thinking about justice, social justice and other things. That's actually even people, right, some people maybe on the left that deny God, uh, they're actually worshiping God, that, that name justice, that is their relationship with the divine. That is God's attribute. And um, so Rumi says, everything that is a beloved, whether its name is mother or father or spouse or money or pay, or fame or, or, or power, that behind it is truly the divine, that that's what's being loved, even if people don't realize it. And that at death, the veil is lifted and we see like what we truly love Was the divine reality, the source, the one truth behind the myriad forms. Mm. And so Rumi's and the Sufi tradition isn't calling us to be totally world denying, but to not, the real kind of like takeaway of the whole tradition is never lose sight of the one in the many. Always let the many draw you back to the one. Mm. And, you know, interestingly enough, two of the names of God are al habit and al-basit, which is the expander and the contractor. And this is also, they talk about on the spiritual path, you'll be given expansive states, but also states of deep contraction and difficulty. But those are both ways to know the divine. And Rumi has a great line where he talks about him guiding his disciples. And he says, for them, I'm pouring wine. And they're all becoming drunk. He's talking about the expansive states as he's guiding them nearer to the Divine Presence. He said, but as for me in this moment, I am not drinking the wine, I'm drinking the dregs, right? The the bitter stuff at the bottom of the barrel. And he was saying that he was in a deep state of contraction and feeling separate. You know, a lot of his poems are nearness to the beloved, but there's just as many poems about feeling separation. And I think that's beautiful. And Rumi then closes that poem by saying, but if this is what my beloved pours me, then I love it. And I love, uh, and this is of course is a, as a high, high station. We're not always there. We don't always love the bitter stuff, but I think that's a beautiful aspect of, of this tradition and real true authentic spiritual teachings. They're not telling us avoid the world, don't deal with the world, but they're telling us to engage the world um, in a way that enjoys the beautiful but also gives us the ability to navigate the difficult in a way that is real. It's not saying it won't be difficult. It's not saying we won't experience pain, but it's saying there is a way to actually navigate suffering um, that can actually lead to a sweetness, even in the bitterness.
1: Yes. (laughs) Separation on the path is so beautiful, especially um, now we just see. There, there's a denial, a big denial in, in the modern kind of incarnation of spirituality and denying suffering. And all, you know, from the Bhakti saints to the Sufi saints to even many of the, the Catholic mystics will use. Separation, like the beloved, where did you go? Where are you? You let me dance with you that one night, and now I'm by myself. Um, it's so, such an important teaching. Instead of denying that um, suffering is what we would call, like people would say, bad and try to avoid it. Because in the moment, the reality is it could suck. <laughs> yeah. Whether it's suffering, you know, in this moment of, feeling like God has abandoned you or the divine has left you stranded or in a moment when you look down and your partner is, is dying or your, your beautiful animal who has been by your side for 10 years um, is dying. You know, in those moments, it, it feels like we, we might be alone, but these teachings are, are really beautiful to like say in those moments, there is even a higher teaching one of my favorite words and, and just hearing you say all these different words for the, the the name of god i think is so cool is in the west we just don't really have that um and in the east there's all these beautiful words for love right bhakti prema ish fana like one of my favorites right and um, maybe you can speak a little bit about this, but from the way it's been explained to me is like this annihilation into love, right? So there is like a death, like being destroyed by love.
2: No, it's a beautiful point. And there's a lot of interesting like Sufi poetry that says like, if you care at all for your life, run away from the path of love because it will it will take everything from you, you know? But there's, <laughs> yeah. there's this idea that... Um, you know, and getting back to the, the that ego self, the al amara, that there is a state um, that is attained by the great ones on the path, in in which there is complete effacement or annihilation of the ego self, and that is called fana, as you mentioned. Uh, literally, could be translated as either effacement or annihilation. Hmm. But, and Rumi uh, gives great examples of this. So he says, like, when a drop falls to an ocean, where's the drop, right? Now, there's just the ocean now. Or, um, you know, he gives other examples like that, as far as um, that exemplify it. But it's this idea that your individuated I, separate self is actually effaced. And all there is, is the ultimate reality, the, reality the ocean of divine love. And in that state, you're no longer, um, and again, it's hard to speak about this side of the veil of duality because it's truly non-dual, right? But, um, and that's why they say, you know, Imam al Ghazali, one of the great Sufis, he said, anyone who speaks about this reality outside of it, anytime you speak of it, you necessarily mix truth with falsehood because it's like you just can't mm-hmm. speak about that. But the point, the idea, like to point at it at least, is that you know there is just experiencing the divine, right? There is just the divine, the ultimate reality. Um, but often, interestingly enough, what's really beautiful is that the Sufis will say that there's actually a higher station than that, and that's Baqa, which is it can be translated as subsistence. It's when you come back, because in Fana you're not. There's no awareness of multiplicity. Um, but you come back to the realm of multiplicity, but and then you're witnessing multiplicity through unity and never losing sight of that. And they say that's the more full station, in fact. Oh. taking partaking of the world and existence, but you're doing it with this kind of like awakened or illuminated state where you're seeing it all in light of the ultimate reality. So, fana and baqa, yeah, these are kind of the two um, two of the great stations on the path. Mm
0: -hmm. Beautiful. Um, wow. This has been an incredible chat and, um, I wish we had some, some more time to keep rolling with you, but I do want to give you an opportunity to share if you have, um, anything else you're working on outside of, uh, the year to live program that you want to talk about. And, yeah. um, and then if you have a reading or or a poem you want to share with us, I'm sure you've got some good ones up there.
2: So, yeah. Um, yeah. So the year to live course is being offered through Rumi center for spirituality and the arts. And this is something that we, uh, founded a few years ago, uh, to really convey these teachings, um, of the great Sufi tradition, focusing on Sufi poetry, but not exclusively. So, um, and it's really like looking at writing a spiritual practice, which is how you know the great Sufi poets looked at it. Um, but more generally just classes on the tradition and bringing people together. So that's one of the things I'm doing. Um, I'm also working on um, my next collection of poetry, which is called The Art of Remembrance. And I'm very excited about that. So pray for that, that we can complete that. Um, and then I hope when things open up, I will be able to actually travel and share those poems. And, um, you know, when things open up with Rumi Center, we're going to be doing retreats in Konya, like in Rumi's uh, homeland and these type of things. So all are welcome and we hope you join us. Um, Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. As for a poem, sure, I'd be happy to read one. Uh, The first one that comes to mind, I think it's called A Station Called Patience. And it's interesting because we talked about the 99 names of God. And, you know, there's, there's an order that they're recited in, right? Um, and the last name of God is As-Sabur, which means patience. God is patience. It's a really beautiful idea. And, of course, it's the last one recited. So, you know, you have to be patient to get them. Um, but the idea, too, in the spiritual path is that we can, there's a phrase in Arabic, at bi akhlaqillah that you characterize yourself with the character traits of God or qualify yourself with the qualities of God that we are supposed to embody the mercy of the all merciful and the justice of the all just and and all of these qualities. And patience is a hard quality to embody. They say it's one of the the hardest ones, one of the final ones. Right. Um, But this also relates to the idea of suffering. Like we've talked about death, so I'll recite this poem called A Station Called Patience. <clears throat> there was a station called Patience that few had attained. Most got off before that stop and only knew it in name. Those who basked in the sun, but didn't care for the rain, perplexed at those few who remained on the train. Paid them no mind and were blind to the secrets they knew like the brightest colors hide, the deepest of blues. For opposite the direction most people pursue, there is a station called Patience, known by a few. It may not have the bright lights or the games that amuse, but its beauty exceeds everything that they knew. The other stations always look shiny and new, but this station looked simple and hidden from view. Those who found patience seemed to find it by chance. Perhaps they fell asleep on the train and woke up in its trance. Maybe a dream they had seen where the question was asked. Is there more to this place than appears at first glance? Some were forced there when the cost of living was high, or the struggles and the troubles had chased them inside. But those who entered her tavern and drank from her wine found the place they called Patience, was a station divine. For what looked to be ruins to the ones that passed by as they scoffed or they pitied those living inside? Patience people look back and they pitied their pride, which veiled them from what only patience could reveal or could hide. Patience is a trust the other stations refused. It infuses and transforms mortal vision anew. Patience is not merely waiting, they're often confused. Patience is a station you awaken into. Once you find the one for whom patience is due, you'll see a mysterious relation between patience and you. Like a long lost memory that finally comes into view, you'll see that patience has been patiently waiting
0: for you. (laughs) Hmm. Wow. So nice, wow. wow. wow.
1: Blue, thank you so much, man. Um, you know, five or so years ago, we we met, and um, I don't know if you remember, we we had a little sot song, uh, and from there exchanged numbers. And I don't know, we just like five years later, here we are. I, I love that you're doing this course. I'm so excited to be part of this. Just hearing you talk and. Uh, having this discussion with you i'm like really excited that this is even that we're having this podcast that you're doing this work Um, i'm really grateful and thankful that you're feeling better too um but also looking at suffering as a gift thank you
2: thank
0: you so much thank you
2: likewise we're really grateful grateful to be on and uh, really happy to have you guys in the course as well i think it'll be a great journey we look forward to it and yeah it's a it's a beautiful thing that our paths crossed and now we're you know reunited in this way so looking forward to the journey together
1: amazing and hopefully uh, at the end of the year we can we can talk again and the three of us might have you know totally you know uncovered something that who would have ever imagined yes, sir. thank you so much man much love brother
0: awesome thanks man
1: Thank you so much friends for joining us and for sticking around the whole episode. Thank you, Barack blue. Thank you for your wisdom, your poetry and your words for any more information on what Brock is offering. You can find his website at roomy center.love that's roomy center.love next week. We have Alexandra Sidek. We're really excited to have her on. So please tune in Tom. Do you want to take us away?
0: Absolutely. So, yeah, after feeling all that warmth from, from Baraka and and what the Rumi Center is doing, I'm just feeling like closing out by uh, letting my eyes shut here. And as the breath leaves my body, just reminded that this is death. And then as the breath comes back in, I can feel my cells light up. Ah, oh, This is life. And we'll see you next time on death.